What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Kana. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here. But the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smart more inspired or more connected than when you pressed play. Where is the long ad read? You will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday, and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that after the show. Welcome back to the show, folks. Today, my guest is Christopher Hatuft, a Norwegian-American chef based in Bergen, Norway. Most of you have heard me talk about him before, and that's because he was my old boss, who ultimately became what I consider to be my first true mentor in my career. I worked for him for almost three years and became a sous chef at his re- first restaurant called Lease for Kit. This episode has been a long time in the making. I started making content during my time at that restaurant, and on my visit back to Bergen in December of 2019, I was truly honored to get some time with Chris to sit down and have what I would consider an essential interview to listen to before you open your own restaurant someday. I think you should check in with this conversation, uh, not just now, listen to it now, but then again, when you're at that pivotal moment when you're deciding on what your concept looks like. I think that the, there's a lot of nuggets in here that will really kind of like pique your interest when you're at that stage in your career. I was actually almost pissed off at myself that I didn't flip on my phone onto recording like some voice memos during some other conversations between Chris and I because I'm constantly asking for advice and prying for insight from Chris when we spend time together. And I just think he's a brilliant self-taught businessman and a really thoughtful chef and he's taught me so much and I really, really hope that you can get some value from our conversation here. We talk about his newest and third restaurant project, which is crazy, coming from the days when he just had his single restaurant, now he has three. Uh, We talk about why the 1% won't care about your food and what you can do about it as well as working abroad and how to make the most of that time and so much, so much more. As you can tell, I'm clearly excited about this interview. Apologies if my audio on my end sounds weird, even though I was wearing headphones to monitor this interview. Only Chris's mic was picking up audio, which is super weird. I tried all sorts of workarounds and I couldn't seem to nail down what happened. So we were effectively doing this interview off of one microphone, which is a bit of a bummer. That being said though, the working one was his microphone and I would like to think that I did a pretty good job of keeping my mouth shut during this interview so Chris could share some lessons. So here you go let's go man let's start it. let's do it i thought the best place to start because so many people get don't look at the screen look at me <laughs> so many people give me questions about it is why go work in the u.s oh like why? for me yeah. why i wanted to go work in the u.s yeah and because you're already in europe like you could have gone to paris and i i would love to get super practical about that and how that kind of working in the u.s yeah, it is not very practical yeah if you're if you're European, but how how why choose that then? It's not. It wasn't about working in the U.S. It was about working at um, a couple of very specific restaurants. So I was in Paris, and well, if, if the first time it was at Alinea. So that was um, pre Instagram, pre uh, pre everything, all of that stuff. So. But it was a forum called eGullet. Were you ever? Did you ever go on that? Okay. So, Grant Atkins did. Uh, I think he did like a pre, like a teaser or something for opening Alinea on eGullet. When he was at. Uh, and I think it was after Trio. Yeah. So. 
I think I remember because I'm not really sure, but I think I remember seeing or following him cooking at Nick Akonis's house. Sure. The menu, like the tri- the trial menus for Alinea, and then watching the opening, like that whole process on on um, on Eagleet, and through. Th- I wonder if I fished out his email address through his account like his profile yeah. account on eagle or something anyway i had his email address and i emailed him directly and asked if i could come start there because i wanted to i wanted that to be like a, to me that was the most interesting restaurant in the world at the time and where was your skill level at it zero i was uh just finish, finishing up apprenticing so i read a lot and like i understood a lot of like the hydrocolloid stuff and the sous vide and all that stuff like that but i've never actually seen it because i worked in a restaurant here that didn't do that kind of stuff uh, and coming from here there was what we thought were good restaurants wouldn't you know wouldn't survive a week in these other markets right so so um so i noticed that when i got there because I thought I was a shit, you know. I thought I, would, you know, I thought I was very talented. <laughs> but uh, it humbles you pretty fast. It was uh, the whole environment. Yeah. So that was the first time. So because I, because I have a, I have a, um, a, a dual citizenship. It's it's not an issue for me to go and work there. Right. So, but uh, so I traveled over there, worked there for free for a bit. Messed up my ankle. I didn't know that. No, I had to go back and have surgery and stuff. So I couldn't walk. Like, I couldn't. I was on crutches for like half a year. Sad. Yeah. It kind of sucked because I, cause I, wanted, I wanted a job there. Yeah, you were finally probably getting in the groove. So I asked, uh, I asked uh, Grant for a job. And uh, I wasn't very good, but I was already in the you know in the loop so but i guess uh but my thing was like i have to go home and get surgery and then i'll come back and he's like yeah what does that mean yeah but i think i i think i i mean i kind of had a job if i were able to come back i think but you know one out of 20 guys in the kitchen or something but the point is i didn't i went back and i couldn't walk for half a year so i worked at Lere, the fish company so i sold fish that's why i know all their tricks that's why they can never fuck me on uh, any uh, prices or anything. Cause I'll, I'll tell them I can say, yeah, you know, in the, in the computer system, you can you can go check the percentage of your you know profit margin there. It's more than twenty, you can give me a discount, asshole. <laughs> you got to bleep out this. This isn't this is an X-rated kind of podcast. Leroy is like the big uh, fish purveyor in town. Everyone doesn't know Bergen. So, big takeaways from that experience, though, because, like, you did a ton of networking. Like, you still keep in touch with people you met there. Yeah. From what I gathered after leaving, or what, what, you, what, you can, what you can tell after leaving is that a lot of the crew that was there went and did some really good stuff, you know. Uh, Greg, Paco, doing his thing. Like, uh, was there, too. No, he had, I think he had just left. But uh, Curtis Duffy was the CDC. Um, it was a Jeff Piker stick over as the CDC and uh, David Posey. You know, a lot of that 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 whole crew went on and did great stuff. Yeah. 
Kenny Kumo. Shout out to Kenny Kumo, my bro. You know him? No. He's a freak. What was he? But he's the best kind of freak. He's the best guy. Yeah. No, no, no. Actually, he was. Yeah, he was working there. He came from Charlie Trotters. There was a also a like some of the guys that worked at Alinea were staying with some guys who worked at Charlie Trotters. So we kind of we hung out with a little bit. The Charlie Trotters guys, they looked so beat up, man. Like they were pale and skinny and like yeah, like got the golems, you know. And they were so like it seemed so hardcore that kitchen. Did you think the same? And I mean, Alinea was just as intense, but probably in a different way. It was just I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I have no idea. I just think I had impre- You know, I'm talking out of my ass here because I don't really know. But I had an impression that Charlie Trotters were, was meaner. You know, like that old school mean type of kitchen. Alinea was not. Mm-hmm. Like there was, there was. It was intense, but. But. Uh, I was blown away by how they were able to keep the intensity and the pressure without being unprofessional. Like, they weren't rude to you. Like, they would tell you to they would whisper stuff in your ear. Hi, Holly. Hi. Uh, but I'd never seen that before. Like, I, one of my first things, one of the first things they made me do was cut cilantro stems that were being candied for like a grapefruit dessert something uh something i can't remember and me being the slob i was cutting grape like the grapefruit stems on the cutting board and then half of them fell on the floor and the chef came up with the cutting board not saying a word just sweeping around my feet for people that don't know that doesn't sound like much but that was pretty embarrassing that was embarrassing so that experience could have totally scarred you and made you not want to ever do that again. I mean, most people who have that experience don't want more of that. That was like the start of it. For me, it was li- it was a hundred percent life changing, yeah. like a hundred percent before and after, yeah. because I, um, so I I started cooking later than everybody else around me, so I compensated by what I thought was working hard, which wasn't really, but but reading a hell of a lot, like reading everything I could get my hands on and and scouring the internet for, you know, messaging boards and like like uh, Bonjwing's blog. Like, like at that time, you had to find the best, like the most current blogs or people that had digital cameras that would take pictures of the food. Like that way, by, by like on Eagle, Eagle, you would find the thread of like, the Pacific Northwest or something, and then, then you would find the in that thread or folder you would find the a separate folder of the restaurant or a thread of the restaurant you were interested in. And then you go to the last post, and that there will be current pictures from the menu, right? Before you looking for it, like you were looking for plating styles or flavor combinations or. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, plating for sure, like how to splash the sauce on the plate. But uh, I guess also people that that used a lot of these techniques in a day-to-day thing, which people, 
like like you would read about stuff like um like also remember this was when Abu were coming out with all their books and all that stuff, right? So they would come out with their books a couple of years after having used those techniques, and then you might you might see some of the other Spanish chefs use similar techniques. And the fat duck, it was before, it was before they came out with their big cookbook, but you could see some of the techniques and stuff. So for me, it was um, like when you could see like practical practical uh, applications of these techniques that was it was interesting but then the rest of your experience in the u.s at per se and blue hill very much so went almost like the anti that right with the much technique more much more working with i mean like i don't know but the, i mean ha- hasn't everything gone away from that though like you don't see a lot of uh restaurants build themselves as techno emotional or whatever you know so at at blue hill he used a lot of sous vide so there's a lot of practical sous vide applications that i now don't like you know there was um, a per se they would use stuff like meat glue and these kind of things but not in a uh like wiley dufresne way of making square scrambled eggs or all these things it would be it would be to make a classic french terrine but make it stick together tighter you know so i wouldn't say it went away from that but but um it's very easy uh it's like learning learning to use photoshop before you are able to you take good photos you know like not understanding film Bef- but but you're but you know all the features of a digital camera. But you, you hand your hand your roll of film. You don't know how to, you know what's up and down on it. You know. So to me, that's that was more like these places because of high volume at a ve- high volume at a very high level with very a lot of varying ingredients. All this uh, technique is irrelevant because. You need to be able to cook, you know, you can't technique your way out of cooking a perfect piece of duck, you know, like the ducks vary, even the ducks at a three Michelin restaurant, they vary a couple of, I don't know, like, what would they vary, like half a pound in in weight maybe from each, like the ducks, maybe even a pound, you know, like from the very, all the smallest to the biggest, so you just have to know how to cook. It doesn't matter if you know all the stuff, you know, all kinds of ways to bind, uh, you know, make powder out of the duck fat. It doesn't matter if you can't cook the duck, you know? Sure. I mean, that was my issue when I got the least, like I had all these places on our How do you pronounce it? Huh? I say least fucker. Least fucker. That's pretty good. And, yeah. And everybody gets confused because they're expecting to say least verket. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Is I, I had all these places that taught me how to make fluid gels and mm. uh, make nice purees, but then it was like, come here and you don't know how to butcher a fish. You don't know how to. No, people still don't, man. Like people, I got, I could probably, you know, not to take anything away from my cooks, but I can probably count on one hand the cooks that have started knowing how to butcher fish the way I want the fish butchered, sure. which isn't fancy. It's just, you know the way it's supposed to be like you don't scale the fish after you take the fillet off you don't you don't uh like you you, you follow the 
the spine all the way back to the tail. You work you work around the 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 spine. You know when you take the tail off. You know, you know all these different things. You know, like 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 people don't know, you know people don't know how to do that. Like and that yeah, it's a big like that's something everybody struggles with. And I'm I'm spoiled because I used to I've, I worked with a lot of like the place I worked with the meat. It was all like pers- Blue Hill would do like you would have at any given day I'd have all the cuts of like five different animals right you'd have lamb pork beef chicken and you know pus no like uh, what's like uh, turkeys or you know something. And you'd have all the different cuts. You'd have at least five cuts of each animal, at least. Yeah. So twenty-five. It was a. It was. It was a lot of stuff that you need to know how to cook differently, and, and per se, it was every day you had it. You had two different animals and two different cuts. Did you work just the meat station at per se? Yeah. So knowing, like, so knowing all that, and then coming here, it's. You know, most people don't get that experience, though. You know, yeah. so it's not really fair to expect that well, out of people. But it's my biggest pitch to people when they ask, "I want to go to Scandinavia," and I always tell them to go here because I think you'll learn the most working at Lisvaka doing. Uh, there's other places. I mean, I'm sure at Masson, you know, a lot of the you know contrast. Mm. He gets whole animals, like whole pe- whole beef and but that's do, do you enjoy the way that they break de- break things down because like you wouldn't want someone to learn the not right way to butcher like when you talk about the way that you like things butchered mm. some other things i guess that you see people doing improperly not taking the glands out you talk about yeah <laughs> yeah from the from the pork jowl yeah find glands in your pork jowl yeah um no i don't know incorrectly i don't know but sometimes it's hard it's hard uh because of the, the animals vary so much to to be consistent in the um well think through well think through if i cut it like this how do i then cook it you know what i mean like like you have to really like that's the, i think that's the hard you know ask the guys on the meat station what the hardest thing is and i think that's like they, you know, they pass up a piece of meat and they look at me and I go like, "What? What the hell did you just do?" And they go, "I did what you told me to do." Not, yeah, but not. I told you to do it, but not with this cut. This is this and this cut. You have to do this and this. And look at the size of it. And this is a a la carte, not a tasting menu. So look, you know, yeah. that doesn't make sense. Mm. And they look at me like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. When someone is in the U.S and they're in it to win it, but they only know they have six months there, what can they do to make the most out of it? Or what was an impactful thing that you feel like you did? Knowing that Well, I'll put it this way. When I moved to Paris, my job wasn't the most interesting. It was, uh, I was cooking at, I was, my title was the chef at the Norwegian Embassy, but I was also the only cook and part-time dishwasher and, uh, you know, but what what my wife and I did was we saved up money so that we had money when we were there so that we could live, you know, like be a, like I would say, if you go to New York to, to work, you make sure you make the most of your time off as well. You know, like you can you can put 15 hours a day and 
to a lot of different restaurants all over the world, but only only New York has what New York has, right? So if you're in the French countryside, you work and you go to sleep. But if you're in New York, you know, I would make sure you hit up Chinatown and you go to Koreatown and you go eat at all these. Like you get the best of every category in the world in that city. And you meet people that, that at least at the type of restaurants that we gravitate towards is people that move there to better themselves mm-hmm. for a short period of time. They go to be the best possible, you know, craftsman they can be. So like making the most of that is, I mean, not, not having like dull moments, you know, like go drink cocktails, go f- find good wine bars, go to all the late night spots and, you know, the best breakfasts, all these, like that, that experience, like and learn how to be a guest. Mm-hmm. That to me is, uh, I think like an overall, like learning, learning how to be a guest and then having that, like taking away that confidence of knowing what you like as a guest that gives you more empathy when you're in this situation where you have to create something for guests. You know, if you only know, if you only know how to cook, it doesn't matter if you know how to break down 15 different animals into 25 different cuts. If you don't know, if you're as a guest has never, have never had it, you know, that was one of my biggest learnings from being here was like, you'd see someone who doesn't know that tempered cheese is better and they pass up a plate. Of- yeah, because you've never ordered a plate of cheese in your life. Mm. And not just that, it's also, like, I I prefer wine at the, on the t- like a wine bottle on the table because me as a guest, I don't want, like, I appreciate the skill of a sommelier, but I don't want a person at my table all night. Like, I, I don't have that much time in my life. I If you and I are going to dinner, I want to talk to you. I don't want to be, I'm not there to be entertained. You know, I'm there to, I can entertain myself, you know. So I want the wine bottle on the table. If if it needs to stay cold, I want it in a cooler next to the table so I can pour it myself. So, like at this restaurant, we're not doing, tab- we're not doing like uh, wine pairings because I don't want this at this restaurant. Like that, that to me would be a complete clash. And you don't know, like those, those things, those things are all just theoretical until you've experienced it a lot. And then you get the confidence and you can say, well, like, I'm sure like that, that confidence as a guest has helped my restaurant a lot. Cause the worst thing to probably have is, is no opinion, right? Mm. At least knowing I like this or I don't like this as opposed to, well, I don't, I don't know. What do you think? Or just you emulate, you just say, oh, well, this is how it was at the restaurant I worked without knowing any of the reasons why they did that at that restaurant, right? But the restaurant tour, the role of the restaurant tour is disappearing and it's all us, you know, egocentric young male chefs. What else is something that you learned as a guest that finds its way into the projects you do now? You had to think of. As a guest? Mm. Um, that's a good question. Or maybe, maybe another way to word that question is, when you go out to a restaurant and you see something, you're like, I don't really like that. Well, most, a lot of places, they don't put the guest in the forefront, though. They put 
the experience or they put the ho- they, they think of it too holistically right you're we come into the restaurant you're here to experience what we are going to give you as an experience well well only a very s- tiny percentage of restaurants are like that so i think i hope that i by respecting the guests more putting myself in their position i have i can accommodate more what they want you know so so like at least like we we started with tasting menus only now we have like for 2020 our pushes a la carte menu i want to expand our a la carte menu because i see that our return guest they increasingly they know what they kind of like know what they're there for they want the langoustines or they want this or that or you know the mussels or whatever or they want just to have some stuff to share like some shellfish first and then a main course and then you know whatever so like being like taking a step back and thinking that like looking and uh like trying to to not think of is this restaurant the the best version of what i can do like do i can i put all my potential in, into this one space or is does the restaurant itself has have like some some boundaries you know like where the location not like on that street or whatever but in that city at that price point with that amount of seats what should the product be and then and then you take and you go one step further and you say with the actual layout of the space you know does it make sense to do this in that type of restaurant or you know does the servers have to walk so far x number of times per night if you have a nine course tasting menu yeah yeah so that i mean that as a guest like if you if you're not if you're not a if you're not a confident guest it's really hard to make those decisions i think so when you're thinking i mean we should talk about this place for a little bit do you want to give the the dam score 101 i'm working on that this is a sustainable uh, uh let me try that again <laughs> i mean honestly it's a steakhouse <laughs> I, was gonna, I was gonna say let's go we're in the elevator, the elevator. yeah it's a steakhouse for the neighbors that i want people to travel all over town for yeah. But Henry, can you still there out there? It's a damn important radio interview. Hush. There. Um, so my working, like my sketches, were like what I would, what I would really try to like study is was a layout of sports bars like american sport like to me the american neighborhood sports bar where none of the guests ever do any sports but they're all like they all the guys come to hang out you know it's like the american version of the english pub sure. like that to me like i wanted that mm. like i wanted that ambiance that but for everybody not just for you know men with drinking problems but but for, like I wanted a place that everybody could pop by that would have food that you wouldn't have to think too much about before you order or before you made up your mind to go and um you know uh, just a, a natural part of the neighborhood so that's why when you walk in the door you sit look you see straight at the bar like the whole wall is basically a bar even if like the kitchen and the bar and um 
and I maximize the, the windows so every single window is has a seat. Yeah, like I like I wanted it to be that type of like low key neighborhood spot. How old is this building? Nineteen twelve. But it's just the, just those bricks, the, the brick facade that's left. But like, families and kids can come and. Yeah, so a, a real kids menu, like the, so it was a mix. So an American sports bar, a French bistro, like a neighborhood bistro that would do like a, the the. Um, the 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 nice way of doing a set menu, right? Like a prefix, which which normally, at an and a, a restaurant in France means that you get a deal, like it's an actual deal, right? Uh, so you see, they're like a starter and a main for a price, or a main and a dessert for a price, a set price. Mm. Like now, a, a fixed menu means that the guests don't don't have any options, and it's not really a deal. It's the most expensive thing you can order, you know, and it's easier for the kitchen and all that stuff. I want like, I really the last I would say like the last year and a half I really started. I started thinking, like, is it this, are we offering something to for the guests? Like, it, it, do we have a real, is there a real deal there? You know, like, not necessarily, like, something cheap, but, like, if you have a guest chef, like, is a guest chef there to make the, 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 the resident chef look good? Like, is it, is a guest chef there to, it's like, is a guest chef there to, to, to to position yourself in a certain club, you know, you're a high, you're a, so the newest cool place in New York. You invite the new cool place in London. Boom, everybody sees that, you know, the two of you are the coolest guys in the world. Sure. But is that really something that the guest like? Like, is it, just a is it a deal for the guest? Yeah. So I stopped doing my guest dinners for, for I've stopped them for a long time because I don't really know if I'm doing anyone a favor. Yeah. You know, like. So, so for me, I really want to make sure I'm offering something up for the guests that they, the neighbors, sorry, the neighbors, that the neighbors really find value in. Doesn't always mean, it doesn't mean it has to be super cheap, but it's like, there needs to be a consistent, very consistent menu. Some of the dishes might, like I want the traditional shotkaka like the meatballs to stay on forever i just want the world's best meatballs because it's such a, it's such a uh, everybody knows the dish right so the neighbors when they get a visitor without explaining too much they can tell their friends that they can tell their visitor fr visiting friends like my neighborhood spot has the best meatballs in norway like and it's fairly cheap you know and if i have a day a, like a a set menu for the day and it needs to be an actual deal sure. you know because then people come multiple times i mean like I think you give something you give you give the guests something yeah. you know yeah, yeah like i've been to Hogan three times <laughs> yeah the 12 days that i've been here mm. because it's like i can just go get a pizza and, a glass mm. wine and it's great the same way the same with wine like like if you if you have like the wine pairing is the biggest bullshit in restaurants like i i believe like i'm too young and too inexperienced to really know but i believe that a wine i'm guessing that a wine pairing started by by uh, a guest coming in and saying 
I want a um, like I, I want to have these dishes. Can you give me a glass of wine that fits with each dish? And then the the waiter saying, "Of course. What wine do you like?" Well, I like Burgundy Chardonnay, and I like a big red, like a Bordeaux. All right, cool. I'll have something open. I'll pour you something, right? And then that has been perverted into this. In a long meal, you'll get 10, 15 pours of wine that are tiny, which the wine and the wine isn't meant to be enjoyed in a tiny pour. In a you know, like it it evolves in the glass and all that. And then it's not personalized. It is is purely like a um, a sensoric match. It's like this flavor fits with this in that dish. If you taste them together and have no distraction, you will experience a sublime food and wine pairing, right? But always mixed in with shitty cheap wine, so you you so that you can have a good profit margin on that list, not on that wine pairing. So to me, like that's like a place like this should have really good wine that we have found. Like we have gone out and found. Like we have looked at all the importers, all their wines, and said, "Show us all your affordable wines." And we taste all these wines, and then we bring them back to the neighborhood and we say, "Listen, guys, all these wines that we found are the best value wines available to us here, and we have gone to all gone through all this trouble finding them to you for you." And we're going to offer them at a good price. Like if you can do that, then then you've done something for the guest. You know what I mean? It's to me, it's the opposite of a wine pairing. Yeah. Because if you're if you know your wine and you go to a, I'm not saying like you go to three Michelin rest. You know, you can go you can get some really sublime wine pairings. Mm-hmm. But you go to a run of the mill tasting menu with the wine pairing. More often than not, somebody that knows their wine, they'll be like, "Oh, this is the base cuvee from this." Uh, you know. Rheingau Riesling and you know it's not the good it's not the top cuvee it's just a a good name but the base wine and yes Riesling and shellfish works well together you know good job you know sure Hmm. so how when when that moment hit where you're like I want to do a project like this you also had international opportunities on the table for yourself and you've always wanted to stay in Bergen. And even when I was here, you were turning down things that could have taken you outside of Bergen. But you wanted to stay here. It's your home city, but why Why? Why? why the decision? To- it's easy. Because yeah, I strongly, like, I believe that, that, I believe that you need to have a, a, um, you need a competitive advantage. If you're, if you're trying to make it in a business with low margins, you need a competitive advantage. I have that in the city. I don't have it in Copenhagen, New York, anywhere, you know, anywhere else. So I could, but then that competitive advantage would have to come with like something like an investor with a lot of money or a position somewhere or a product that I think would be very unique in a very highly competitive market. And, you know, I like to think that I could have a competitive a product but I can't I can't be in New York and and compete in New York while still having my businesses here because I, I just don't have I don't have that team and I don't have that organization you know I, I don't have that skill so it, it doesn't make sense you know I like um 
I also know like I also don't really like I want to I want to live here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand. I I don't I don't understand why not why not why more people want don't start something here. Like you know, like that's there's so many like it's harder with all the the logistics and all that stuff. Mm. But if you have an ambition and some somewhat a skill set you can open up some really amazing places way outside of these big markets Mm -hmm. i think it was one of the best calls you made but i also think that it it what call to come back to bergen oh because yeah i mean it was a given it wasn't yeah but i didn't have a competitive advantage in new york i like i was I mean, even more so the opposite. Like, didn't have any money, didn't have any network. Like, I can cook. I'm not the best cook. Like, I've uh, even at, you know, even at these, even if I worked at these top restaurants, I was never one of the best cooks at these restaurants. I was just a cook at these restaurants. So, if you then try to branch out and do something on your own, it's it's not realistic. Like, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. It would take me, like. Uh, it would probably take like 10 years of really like a dedication to try to open my own spot, like meeting investors, all that, all that stuff. And and I was 30 when I moved. So that was just not even like, I didn't even think of it here. I can move back to Bergen and be the guy who moved back from New York, you know? So even before I started it, I had a competitive advantage and it's cheaper to open here. Right. Big fish in a small pond. So you move back here, and you have to grapple with this idea of what does my food look like. Yeah. Can you speak to that process a little bit and what that was like? And that's why we that's why we invented the neo-fjordic bullshit. Exactly. Because that was uh, I don't I didn't know I still don't know I still now I've kind of like six six seven years in I feel like I'm getting there a little bit, but in the beginning. Everything looked, you know, everything looked like lesser versions of what I cooked somewhere else. But I did know that I wanted, I did know that I wanted it to look nice. You know, like, if you're turning a beat, you turn it well, not, you know. So that's why we only had all those white plates and still mainly have white plates because you put food on a round white plate, you can't hide it. If you put it on a handmade $50 ceramic plate everything looks nice but on a round white porcelain plate if you haven't plated it nice if you haven't cut stuff nice or cooked it nice or whatever it looks like shit unless you hide it under a bunch of leaves or some you know nordic something you nordic it out you know so uh, yeah i mean and then flavor wise that's still a process because um I always want to accommodate everybody, like your people around me in the kitchen. If you have an idea, like I want to, I want everybody to feel good about it. Like if you cook something, we taste it. Like if you're really excited about something, it'll end up on the plate. And very often, uh, I feel like many times I shouldn't have done that. You know, I should have just said, no, I don't like that. But I don't want to be that type of boss, just shoot down ideas, you know. But I started, I started doing it a lot more. And I think the food is better for it. Because it, I mean, it's it's not because necessarily I have the right idea always, but I have the I have a train of thought throughout the whole menu. You, you know, like you have a connection. Yeah, and also like I, 
I'm I'm here from day one. I will be here on the last day. People come and go, right? So if I if I let all these whims come to the plate, it will feel inconsistent, right? So um, I mean, it was the, one of the most uh, prolific learning experiences for me when I was here. It was to see that process of you going from feeling like you were cooking lesser versions of food you cooked before to this really looks like me now. Hmm. I mean, that was like, and to your point about those guest chef dinners, I think that process of making relationships with your purveyors because you would go visit them with these guest chefs actually gave you, you know, that. Yeah, but these, these, these dinners didn't give me, uh, I don't, I don't really think, uh, they didn't really give me, give me what I wanted because I didn't, I was, uh. I think I was trying too hard to um, put too much content in it. Like it was always like culture, food, music, art, you know, social stuff, all that into one dinner. And at the end of the day, the dinner was on a Monday. Right. Like we didn't really offer the guest anything. Uh-huh. And uh, the, the staff wasn't as into it as I was hoping. You know, like some stuff like you sure. ate it up, mm-hmm. you know, like really got it, got what we were trying to do. But uh, some staff just really didn't give a shit because, you know, they didn't, weren't that interested, and you know. taken away their weekend. <laughs> yeah. But I think. But to me, like somebody did that, if somebody had done that for me 10 years ago, I, you know, it would have been a, w- one of those life-changing experiences, right? But this isn't a linear. Like I don't have a linear. I don't have 20 like super hardcore dedicated Chefs, I have, you know, not, and again, not taking away from my chefs, but like on an overall thing, like I have, it's smaller here. Yes. I'll put it that way, you know. But the menu meeting on Tuesday after that Monday was always more interesting because we are always thinking about like, oh, I saw, um, I saw so-and-so reduce the apple juice. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to try that. Yeah. with this thing we're doing. And when you think about someone who has a cuisine language of their own, there's really only 10 to 20 things that they... So, like, you do 15 dinners, and you take even... It feels like a lot, because you try to cram so much stuff into this. Hmm. You take away one thing that ultimately becomes this thing in your repertoire. Yeah, yeah, for, for sure it did, for sure. And, uh, you know, I, there was there was stuff to learn from more or less all of them. Yeah. You know, like not not everything, but like Paul Key can cook. You know, like that guy. You can throw him. You know, throw him to the wolves, and the guy can cook like nobody's business, right? And he and he knows flavor, and he it was just fun to watch him cook, right? With product from here. Too. Yeah, like yeah, like not even just like he just has such a repertoire, you know, and it's such an intuition that he put stuff on it. Give him a bunch of ingredients, and he'll cook food that looks like his food, yeah. without giving it a second thought. What were you some know? other resources during that time that you would turn to when you were trying to figure out what your food looked like? Or even now, I mean, you still like stay up late watching YouTube videos and reading cookbooks. All I just I sat I sat for hours yesterday watching uh, the Urban Butcher uh-huh. and the Meat Hook uh, but- guys. Sure. Um. Yeah, I don't know. What do I... I honestly, a lot more P. 
peeling away bullshit. Like when you explain the dish, if you explain it to your mom, is she going to roll her eyes and be like, what the hell are you talking about? What is this? You know? And then when, when she eats it, is she going to be like, that shit's crunchy and raw. It's not good. You know, like I have this super special clam that uh, you can only find five of, you know, every time you dive, but you know, when you eat it, it's like, it's a really interesting flavor. And she goes, yeah, it's disgusting. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Try to t- get rid of that, you know? <laughs> and, and, um, try to, I don't know. I try to look at, uh, it's interesting to what, to look at other restaurants that are doing very well and look at their process, like 11 Madison park, you know, like you look at their food now and I haven't, I've only had their food in a wedding five years ago or something. And when I did a trial there 10 years ago, I don't know how long ago. And, uh, so I don't really know their food, you know, but I've grown up with their food. So I know the look of their food and the aesthetics and I, you know, I have all their books. So I've read all their recipes and I kind of, I think I understand the understand the flavors, right? The processes. And then when you look at them going from their New York phase into whatever they're doing now, it's so much cleaner. And and they've already done that work and documented that work, so I have the benefit of just looking at it and go like, yeah, that makes sense. I could do that with you know what I'm doing, you know. And so I think I do a lot of that. Uh, not a lot, but I do, I do some of that and go like, I don't need uh, five different micro herbs on something. No offense. <laughs> no. <laughs> I didn't order it. <laughs> but I don't need all those microgreens. I don't need like, you put parsley in a stew, you better put enough of it that it tastes like parsley, not just a couple of specks of green. You know, if you, if you have like, trying to kind of like does it make sense like does it really if you stop and look at it and would you if you were to make that thing the dish as the only dish you're making at home on a sunday what would you do what would make sense you know and then also trying to to that's the difficulty because something like being in a very small city you have to you have the whole demographic you have the really experienced guests that are you know travel around the world and they come to come to Balagan and then you know they hit up my restaurant because I'm easier to find when they google it or whatever and then you have people that don't give a shit and they just want a piece of a steak before they go to a show so some things like the caviar our caviar dish is is a dish that up it's three ingredients four ingredients three four no it's a couple more but it's yeah, but I mean, it's it's the smoked cod, smoked cod shawamushi, so smoked cod stock, which is cod and water, and egg, and then it's the caviar, pickled quince, and chives. So people that have had caviar around, and they're now in Norway, and they want to experience Norwegian food, and they have that dish, they like that dish. Like they, like I hear some, like I'll, I'll hear them say, like, this is a, really smart dish that's really clean and clever and blah 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 and then i have somebody that doesn't know and they'll taste it and be like yeah it's too strong mm-hmm. you know or it's too simple or whatever but i i love the process of making dishes like that because like i don't really give a shit what people think about it because i know i know that it's good you know like i mean i if it wasn't like i'll put it this way if people didn't like it 
I would doubt myself because I really like it. You know, like the mussels that we have, the grilled mussels. That flavor is just objectively a delicious, it's a delicious dish. Like, I believe that dish, like, that is about as good as food gets. You know what I mean? But it's not fancy. It looks, you know, I, I posted a, someone posted it the other day and one of the comments underneath was it looks like a bunch of dirty dishes right <laughs> stacked dirty dishes like the muscles like up close yeah. which it does but people that like food they, they taste that dish and they go holy shit that's a delicious dish yeah. so i like i would like to do more of that you know less like to have a um a cleaner thought process behind the dishes not so much like what protein what protein do we have today and what gar- do we have kind of starch do we have and sauce and uh, yeah let's mix these together right. you know like if, when you change the menu out a lot it, especially the main courses are very easy because they're big they'll be like you look at the plate and go like there's a lot of and like fish and kale and mushroom and this it's not like it's not a buff bourguignon sure. there's no and in a buff bourguignon it is a dish that is a specific dish because everything makes sense in the dish. Yeah. Right? There's no classic dishes that you explain as and, and. Like Wiener Schnitzel. It's not pork, breaded pork and lemon and capers and potato salad and mosh and beets and mushrooms. And it's just like, it is what it is. You know what I mean? Sure. So if you can hit that, that, that's a good guiding goal for a, a guiding principle for good for making good dishes, I think. This is the first restaurant I worked at where it was okay. We we had that conversation one day where it was like, I don't think it needs a green on it. And for <laughs> me in my career, that was like, holy shit, this is like, it was it was like a you were scathing my view of what a plate should look like. If you look at food today, though, there's no greens on anything. Yeah, everything shingled now. Yeah. This doesn't need shingled rainbow carrots. What? What do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> uh, what do you think is a common... I want to go more to the, the, the restaurateur side of Christophe now. So what do you think is a common misconception that first-time restaurant owners make? <laughs> that people, people are really interested in what you have to bring. Like the, who you are and what's your story. I think that's a misconception. I think people are interested in like, are these able? These guys, these new guys, they're able to feed me quick, deliciously, at a decent price in a way that wants me to come again. You know, not so much like, oh, we have this whole story to tell, like time and place. I think that's a that's a mis that's a misconception. I think that, but I think well, but when when I think of it, maybe the. The biggest one, and the one that makes me the one the one advice that I that I um, I don't know if it's like a single advice, but the thing that I the conversation I have with most people when when I talk about a restaurant that they're about to open is like, what is your competitive advantage? Like, why should people come to your restaurant? Why should you stay alive? You know, what is it about your operation that and it will make you not fail within the last first year that i don't know 80 percent or whatever people fail within the first year i don't know what the percentage is but i made that up but but there's some there's something like that right so what is it about your operation that 
will keep you in business. And most people, they don't have an answer. Yeah. Like, I've, like, I was having a conversation with my wife yesterday, which she will probably not listen to this. But we were talking about a new restaurant that we want to, that we're like a space. We're, we have this space that is available to us, and we're thinking about a concept. And like, she wants this to be her, like her place. So she has this really good idea, like a really good idea, of like a place that has this ambiance of the the places that we loved in Paris and New York and these places. And and I tell her, well, but but this space it does couldn't won't physically fit that concept. So if the space doesn't fit the concept, you need to pivot and look at what the like what does this space allow, allow right? So there's two motivations: is the space. Is the space the motivator? Like this space is in a perfect uh, placement in this neighborhood, and like it is so beautiful, right? And then the second motivation is I have this idea of something that I think people really enjoy, and and uh, it's a, that idea. The city or this neighborhood needs this concept and very often they try to force a concept into a space or vice versa and that to me is like the biggest mistake because those factors that some of those factors that come with the space are so defining for their operation you know like are you like how in a city like this that has such fluctuations between busy and slow what is the minimum amount of staff you can have to to be in control of your space and what's the max what what is the the number you need when it's really busy and if it's too far apart then how are you able to actually keep the skill level required in the staff to to be consistent on your product throughout that time you, you know what i mean so at least i'm not you know like that space is so awkward that when we were doing lunch you still need table service because there's no it's not like a classic lunch type of counters like you can't come up to the counter and order and you can see the entire room from the counter right so that means you need about the same amount of staff on a slow lunch just to cover the actual real estate than you do in a in a busy dinner but the revenue is three times higher for dinner sure. right so like as a, I think the uh, restaurateur, there's no, there's hardly a, such a thing as a restaurateur anymore. A restaurateur is normally a cook who has more restaurants that becomes the restaurateur, right? But I think very often it's people have a set idea of what they want to do, and then they try to force it into a specific location or a specific space. Yeah, uh, that and that I think is why you see a lot of stuff failing. They don't look, they're not analytical enough about it. You know, there's no market, there's no market research, you know, like they don't do a polling. Like I I asked a friend of mine, and this is, this is the craziest thing. I don't understand it. I asked a friend of mine who works for a big restaurant group in New York. And I asked her, when you guys open up in one of these new developments, what number, like what, what uh, statistics and what data do you pull from? to determine the size of the restaurant, the concept, opening hours, seats, all these different things. Because, I mean, 
there's an algorithm, I'm sure, you know. And she says, ah, we don't really have those numbers. It's like, no way, man. Like, and I think I think the world is is that random, you know. I I don't think. I I mean, I know that you know the the grocery store next door. They look at the median income of the neighborhood, and then they have a couple of different uh, different type of of stores in their portfolio, and they say, okay, the the neighborhood has this medium income. That means we put this store in, right? If people, are more, if there's a higher income, we'll put this more high-end store or whatever, you know. But I think that's super rare. And to me, that's the mo- that is the craziest stuff because, like, this street here, it's the same company that has developed the entire area. Like, I don't know, a thousand apartments and with businesses, like uh, co- uh, commercial real estate on all the first floors. So they, they approached me for, or with, I talked to them for this space and they asked me, what do you want to do? And I said, well, what do you guys need? What does the neighborhood need? Uh, we don't know. Like, what do you mean you don't know? You have, you've built buildings with commercial real estate in specific sizes and layouts in the entire street. You don't know how many, um, how many, how many hairdressers do you need? You know, how many, uh, store uh, clothing stores do you need do you know do you need one high-end clothing store and two cheap ones do you need one payless uh, shoe source to whatever it's called and then another high-end one like and there's no nobody knows you know what i mean which is crazy nuts imagine the amount of money being spent on developing restaurants and and concepts without having that those numbers it's a huge difference having 60 and 120 seats or 250 seats you know it should be algorithm based so anyway i would say like i would say like that to me is like really understanding the neighborhood you want to open in and being very very analytical what was your question yeah common misconception restaurant first time owners make but i think do you think that story comes after because so many people like I mean, there are people who really connect with the story that a restaurant has or that they, why their food is, but that to you is like, that can come later. That's like this underlying. What do you mean? That the it. guest yeah, connect with the, the story? How the guest perceives you and your restaurant. Hello. You know, what, what, like your background or how you look at the product from the ocean differently or like all these people who say. Yeah, but you're talking about the 1% though. I mean, it's the one percent. You're you're going to open a restaurant. It will not be a one percent restaurant. You know, you you will follow the one percent on Instagram, but you will be one of all the other ones. You know, and all the other ones, nobody gives a shit. People use the restaurant the way they want to use the restaurant. That's great. That that to me is like like everybody opens a restaurant thinking they want they want to be that one percent. Yeah. No, no, thinking they will be. You know, they won't. And then. You know, I'm happy not being that. Like yeah. with the with the friends of this fucker, I chose not to invite all these. Well, it's not like I could pick anyone I wanted, but yeah. but our thought process was always like, who has some th- something to teach us? You know, not who will put us in that same category as a you know who will put us up, up in the one percent. Because they bounce like they have very short attention spans. Yeah, and also of those one percent, how many of the guests really go to the restaurant because they really, really give a shit about who they are? Yeah. 
I, th- I think that is like somebody should do a study on that. I'm sure that's. I don't know. I wanted to talk about if you have any failures. <laughs> Are you zooming in on me now? Any failures that you're particularly fond of at any point? It can be when you're fond of, or, yeah, or that that set you up for something down the road that was like I, I face planted here. Yeah. So when I got to Blue Hill, I thought I could cook, right? I really thought I could cook. I've been cooking for, I don't know, years. And I got there and I couldn't cook worth shit. Why? Why? Because I'd never been stress tested the way they do on the line at a high volume, high end restaurant in the US. The equipment was different. I'll, you know, I'll use that as an excuse. Like I never used a VitaPrep blender before. We always used a thermal mix or a hot mix or one of those European ones. So when asked to make a puree in a VitaPrep, like I didn't know to turn it all the way up and then you scrape down the sides and, you know. But also, I never really made good purees before. You know, I never cooked stuff really tender so you get a smooth puree and whatnot. Yeah. So... So I was late. How do you say? I was. Yeah, that was, that, that that was like a real like shameful experience. I came there thinking I was a shit, and I'm sure Greg talked. You know, when he, Greg, my friend who hired me, probably told Dan Barber that I was a good cook. And when I came, I'm probably sure he had to go to Dan and say, Greg, Greg hasn't. We haven't we haven't talked about this, but I'm pretty sure he had to go to Dan and be like. Yeah, chef, I don't really know. He's nice, though. You know what I mean? <laughs> so he almost, so I, I mean, I almost got fired there in the beginning. Like, I barely got to stay on. But then I learned, I, I want to th- think, I would like to think that I learned fast. But but that was, that was a very, very humbling experience. Like, that was, you know, you might be the best of, best of your class here, but you go to somewhere real, you get your ass handed to you. I was hearing someone talk about that the other day. Like, pick the NCAA championship football team and put them against the worst NFL team, and they'll get mm. spanked. Mm. It's just different. It's like mm. different. Yeah, and that and that kitchen wasn't even the you know by far the best hardest kitchen in New York. It was just people could cook, you know. So that was a that was a pretty hard failure. I mean, that was that felt rough, man. I felt stranded in the u.s having talked a big game and not being able to deliver so that was embarrassing and failure i would say i would say every year i run a deficit here is a failure it's a different it's different though you know it's Like it's, an embarrass- it's embarrassing working so hard not being able to make money yeah. to turn a profit yeah. so that like that makes you question yourself like am I like don't like why is that you know what I mean sure. why are people able to make a profit in, in those restaurants that I consider being lesser but they still make more money you know what I mean mm-hmm. and it's it would be easier to say oh but they take all these shortcuts or whatever but it doesn't matter man they still make money and it's hard it's, it's really rough not like 
having like I have people that work for me now for six years. You know, like at some point it turns into a responsibility because they've passed up on opportunities to stay. So I owe them. And that's how I feel now. Like I just straight up owe them to do well, you know, so that they can have a, so they don't regret having stayed on, you know. And that's what keeps you going. Not what. No, but I just, you know. It is a motivation. Yeah. It provides inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. I did talk on motivation, inspiration, and ambition, how they went hand in hand. Do you think they do? Yeah. I have to think. I have a really long train of thought for that. How do you get motivation? Because everybody asks, how, how do you get inspiration? What inspires you? And everybody gives the same answer. But what, like... What motivates me? Um, I want to be... I, I, I want to be better than everyone else, but not necessarily measured at whatever, not necessarily quantifiable by the list and all that stuff. But like, I want to be more professional. I don't want to be the asshole who's like, throws my arms, arms up after 10 years and says, yeah, but I mean, everything, all the odds were against us. And that's what, like, fuck that. You know, like I want all the odds against me and still do well. You know, I want to, I want to be the. I want to. I want. I want to still be standing when everybody else goes bankrupt and and leaves. You know, I want to. Uh, I want to be measured by the same standards that people in other businesses. Like I'm 40 years old, and I have about 50 employees, and I have a revenue that's like a medium, small, medium business here, but it's still like a Mickey Mouse business. You know what I mean? It's still a. Yeah, it's like any shitty lawyer has a better standing than a decent cook. You know what I mean? Like, that's a real job. You go to a bank as a lawyer, you get treated as a lawyer in the bank. You go to the bank as a chef, they throw all kinds of shit at you. Like, all this, like, I can't, it's hard even to get a loan. You know what I mean? Like, so, yeah, I want to do, I want, I want my business to do well. And also, like, my motivation is, like, my, Anatta and I, we argue sometimes because I have this big picture. Like, I have my eye on the prize, like, super big picture, like, another five years of crushing it, like, you know, working all day, all night. And then I'll be there. And she'll say, yeah, you said that 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And then you said it five years ago. Now you say it. So what about now, you know? But my mo- like, I really... I want to be that fat restaurateur that hangs out, smokes cigars, and drinks wine, and magically my businesses just make money, and I live live well. You know, have a house in Paris, and that's what I want. That's my motivation. But I don't know, you know, I don't, I don't know how to live that life though. Right. Have you studied infinite games? What? Infinite Is that an app? Games? No. <laughs> it's just the idea that there's zero sum games and there's infinite games, and in infinite games you don't play to win, you just play to keep playing yeah that sounds like it yeah i enjoy it though i love it 
but I'm also getting tired of tired not tired of it, but it, it's tiring. You know, I'm tired. I'm tired of not never sleeping, yeah, yeah. always being tired, mm-hmm. never having a, any personal life. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know, but I still love. I'll still get fired. I mean, I still loved watching those YouTube videos last night, and came here and tied up my. Like I, I have my uh, my tender, my pork tender now curing, hanging, and I, you know, rubbed it in nice smoked paprika, so I get this nice cured lomo. Yeah. You know, like I really get. Fi- I still love it. I, I love it. Sure. So when you get a new project presented, whether it's a new neighborhood or a TV show or someone asks you to do something, at this point in your career, how do you decide what to say no to? I, does it benefit? the overall the big picture does it get you closer to that vision yeah like opening up a new like also with my with the conversation i had with anatta yesterday is like right now i'm not opening a single new place that doesn't benefit all my other places you know like can you talk about how this one does benefit your other places Cause I this is a counterbalance yeah, it's a counterbalance to Lisvaka. Lisvaka is in a, the kitchen is super awkward with the basement and all that in the in the in the bottom. We do all our breads in the house. We do all the doughs for the pizza place. All that stuff. It's a lot of carrying flour, you know. So here, I basically have a bakery. Like this is a I, ha, I bought a the equipment from a bakery and put them in this kitchen. So I can scale up everything that has to do with bread and pastries. I have a. All my friends who have uh, organic farms have animals. Lisvak is a seafood restaurant. I can't support them as much as I would like. And it, it makes the meat portion of... Le Bernardin, their meat dish is a sous vide. Like, they buy, they buy tenderloin, sous vide wrapped. Like, run-of-the-mill bullshit tenderloin. It's probably like uh, American Wagyu or some bullshit, but it's, it's a tenderloin. It's a wet-aged tenderloin. Right, like it's a shitty piece of meat at a three Michelin restaurant. Like I buy whole animals for my one meat dish on my seafood menu, and it's a pain in the ass. But I I, I don't want to go back from that because, you know, that would be a cop out, right? So <laughs> the hard solution is to open up a meat place. So that way I can use you know the rest of the animals still use that tenderloin at, you know, at Lusvaka. So the benefits of that way, it makes me, like on a more like boring practical note, it enables me to have a management company that can pull income from, you know, the pizza, pizza, seafood, and meat place, so three different restaurants. And that way I can hire, I can have a person employed that just makes sure the ship doesn't sink, you know, all the dishwashers work and all that, all these things. That's really hard if you have a, only one restaurant. My in-house, Ingrid, uh, with all the in-house accounting and compliance and all that stuff, booking. Like, I can professionalize the business a lot more. And and I'm trying, also, honestly, I want to be able to set me set myself up in a way that if I, when I get an offer for, for a, a, con, a space or something, I could roll it out easily without having to, like, so the reason, like, the first offer, the first offer we got outside of Belgium was in Copenhagen. And, it was a pretty sweet. We were here then. Well, I think it was maybe a little bit earlier. It was a little. Uh, uh, Agar. 
no, no, it was it was a different different thing. This was um, this was in the Copenhagen city center at a at a high end shopping mall, on the top floor, like very famous building in Copenhagen. A very tempting, very flattering, and we considered it for a while. I say we because it was with the guys at that time, mm-hmm. and. Uh, but you basically, I basically would have to mirror my entire operation, everything. I wouldn't have any benefits of scale. So I turned it down. Mm. Now opening this place, I have a lot of benefit of scale. So that, that is, that was, also it's part of my plan. It's part of my plan of world domination, the world being Dagen. There's no blueprint of anybody else's no, there's other restaurant that have other restaurants that have more restaurants, yeah. but uh, the concepts are fairly similar. For an outsider, they would look very similar. Right. Internally, they probably feel very differently, but an outsider would look at them very similar. Yeah. Well, I try very. I, I, I hope that um, I hope that this place will. I want my places to feel very differently. Yeah. Anything else you want to speak to on Damsgård? I want to go into some no. rapid fire questions. All right. Do some Instagram stuff. But anything else about no. Damsgård? I normally ask this a little bit differently, but I don't think that you're the, all that interested in this, so I want to get your opinion <laughs> on uh, Someone from a university comes and says, Chris, there's a meteor that's going to hit the earth, and you have one last chance to go to your favorite restaurant. Where do you go? Can I go back in time? Yeah. I'll go back 10 years, what, 99? Yeah, no, 2009. No, 2009. Yeah. I'll go back to Chateaubriand. Why then? That was when we lived there. And they and they would close the doors and we would drink all night and people from other restaurants would come hang out. It was, it was so much fun. Those were the days. Yeah, those when, you know, when I was young-ish. Right, peppering with this uh, with some people Instagram. Oh, um, is it essential to learn a foreign language as a cook, like French, or can one manage as they go on? Depends on the restaurant, right? You can try speaking it, being American in Japan, and see how far you get. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, as far as I know, Danny didn't speak French when he went to Bel- uh, went to. Uh, what's it called uh, Epicure yeah. right yeah. but he can cook like nobody else mm-hmm. so as long as you can cook that helps but it's hard it's it's essential to be able to bullshit your, get a little you know bullshit a little bit in in, in, a foreign la- in the local language because there's also kitchen lingo right like there's kitchen fluency and then like actual on the street fluency yeah <clears throat> but it, it, I would say though it shows me whenever I have somebody that doesn't speak Norwegian that starts here, starts working for me, if they go through, take, you know, if they do the effort of learning the language, at least some, a little bit, it shows me that, you know, they're not just a tourist, you know? So I would say, I always see it help. It's a sign of respect. You know, you go to France to learn French cuisine, take a minute to try to learn some French. Mm yeah, that makes sense. Name an ingredient you're obsessed with right now. Dry-aged beef. Yeah. 
in your dry ager. It's gotta be it. Are you grilling all of the meats when you, uh, after they're, like, the steaks are going to be 100% Here? Full, you're going to do them in a pan, or how are you going to? Um, question. The burgers, the ground meat, well, the burgers and the shotkaka are going to be, be cooked in a pan. The steaks will be on the grill. The pork neck will be first sous vide and then finished on the grill, like picked up on the grill, like sous vide chilled, chopped, and then and then finished on the grill because I think, you know, whatever application is makes the most sense for the cut. Like we'll probably do osobuco here, which I wouldn't put a big fat marrow bone on the grill and you know but the whole concept is the grill center stage in this place how do you make your eggs in the morning well I'll put it this way I make the eggs for anatta every morning and you don't like eggs I don't eat well I don't eat eggs in the morning but she takes two or three Probably normally does one, maybe two, but she always cooks three. Uh, hard, uh, soft boiled six minute eggs. Interesting. And seasons them out. Straight butter, cold butter. That's so weird. Says a guy who eats a big knob of butter on, like butter with bread, bread on it. Bread. Yeah. Yolk has enough, like, enough of that. Sure. I'll tell her. I'll tell her you said that. She will not give a shit. <laughs> Is there a book that's been particularly impactful? For yes. Okay. Let's see. Recently, this one, yeah. the French Laundry. Recently, the Joe Beef book, the Joe Beef books for this place. I would say not so much this guy. The. Uh, um, let's see, Escoffier. Yeah. Like not, and I know it's a cheesy thing to say, but the thing is like. If you're looking at, if you're looking for inspiration for your menu and you're just, and you're tired and you sit and flip through that book, everything has been done before. Right. The Nose to Tell, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, for sure. Uh, I really want to eat at this place. It's amazing. You've been there? Yes. Amazing. Uh, I would say. There's so, I, I can see there, they have this place called Sundays. <laughs> Carlos and Jimena gave me this book, so I'm going to read that. The LaRousse. called Sundays, where it's a grocery store of stuff they make and stuff from their favorite purveyors. I think you. Who? The Yardbird guy. Oh. Have a place called Sundays. see. The Roberta's book for opening Hogom. Like the vibe there. I was just gifted this old book. Which, which I look forward to reading in reading. Pick a tunes, pick a yunes Creole cookbook. Hmm. Oh, this is awesome. This Chris Constantino. Yeah. I really, I'm. He doesn't know, but he's getting invited to come here to cook nice. with me. I was walking around Paris with my headphones on. Listening to gangster rap, thinking I was all gangster, and this guy jumped, and he and he jumps, and this guy just jumps in front of me, and I and I I take a step back and I'm like, what the fuck, you know? 
and it's him. Oh! <laughs> He's there with his family. I love this book. I don't understand jack shit in it except the pictures. I would say at any given time I'll have like 10 books that I are deeply into. Ed Lee's book. Yeah. Like his, uh, but not, um, I don't know if it is buttermilk graffiti. Is that is is that like an uh, like a a real book or a cookbook? But he has a cookbook that I have. It's, it's something pickles, you know. His food looks delicious. I cook with him in uh, no, because I think that's like a novel or something. I cook with him in Miami. He yeah, he's a cool guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, someone on Instagram asked if you're hiring. Can you cook? <laughs> uh, always. Yeah. We're always hiring. Hiring pizza chefs right now. We're always hiring at info at lisvakia.no. I mean, we have three restaurants with lots of cooks in it. Yeah. And I'm also, this year, I want to start doing lunch at least on Saturdays at Lisbaka mm-hmm. and as soon as possible full-time lunch here so I'll need probably at least five more good cooks awesome. this year yeah, I hope some of you folks get uh, get excited about that because it's the learning the learning is so there what do you think chefs can be doing better to help the next generation is my last question be nice to each other. Unlearn the all the all the bullshit of having to break somebody down and rebuild them. All that shit, like listening, empathy. You know all these, all that stuff that nobody taught taught us how to do. Like how do how do they talk to each other in in your mom's workplace? How do they talk to each other? They don't. Nobody talks to each other like. Each other like we do in the kitchen. But do you, you think know. the people who are attracted to kitchens need to get broken down that way? No, okay. no, they need to be taught. Like no, yeah. Okay. I mean, take somebody. Imagine some of the nicest people that you work with. Like, like at what point would they ever need to be broken down? Hubert, like we have to break Hubert down for him to be a better cook. I mean, that's the stupidest thing ever, you know? Hubert's a super smart guy. He knows how to cook. He's a good cook. He he just needs to be taught by somebody good. You know what I mean? And it doesn't have to be mean. You don't have to be a dick about it. No. You can be nice. You want, like, you want the person, you want the, the guys to be excited about coming back to work. You know, some, and some guys are just plain hardcore, like all these London cooks and all that. You know, like, they're just so hardcore after getting beat down all their life. So they don't give a shit, you know? They're not affected by it. But it doesn't, that isn't what has made them good. You know, that's their motivation and the passion and drive and all the all these other things. And those moments of true leadership that they've seen. All that other stuff is a static. So there'll be a, this, this is my prediction. There's a, there'll be a new round of this like Me Too thing. But it's going to, it's going to come from, Mental abuse in kitchens. You know, some 
cook at some high-end restaurant is going to jump out of the window one day and land on and land on somebody important and then it's going to be like holy shit why did that happen oh that's be- that's because uh, we treat each other like shit in the most expensive environments in the world you come and eat your foie gras and your caviar and somebody's having a mental breakdown in the kitchen for you to have your caviar you know people are going to call bullshit on it so i definitely think that i love it so I apologize for you know treating you like shit in the <laughs> full circle. <laughs> but you needed it though. You were a dick. You were a pussy. <laughs> uh, where is it here? I have a list of uh, pod- dream podcast guests, guests, and you're on it. And I officially get to check it off. All right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. We did it. You're in outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave The Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com slash justincana is the place to do that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram. That is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justincana.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now is normally where I'd say my name is Justin Kana and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to. So I'm just going to get out of the out of the way here. Excuse, excuse me. Pardon me.